What is the biblical evidence that we find for scripture memorization? Jesus often quoted from the Old Testament, but there was nothing in the gospel accounts that said this was strange or weird. How normal was it for biblical characters to memorize scripture? More importantly, what tips can help us learn to hide God's word in our heart? Sounds like a fitting conversation for a program we call The Land and the Book. Hey, thanks for connecting today. I'm John Geiger to introduce the host of The Land of the Book, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And you know, Charlie, these days, a lot of people are looking for hope. You know, where do you find it? In today's turbulent world, many people find themselves sort of adrift in a sea of hopelessness and despair. What comfort do we have then as believers, they're asking? Well, John, uh, Scripture makes it clear that our hope is the future that God has planned for us and the world. If you need an extra dose of hope these days, and who doesn't? We encourage you to tune in to Life and Messiah's third annual prophecy conference, uncovering the messages of the minor prophets. You'll hear from world-class teachers like Dr. Michael Rodelnik, Dr. Tim Sigler, and others about this major topic from the minor prophets. We're certain that learning about God's plan for the church, Israel, and the world will encourage you and motivate you to be involved in what He is doing. Now, to sign up for this free live streaming event, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today. The conference begins September 30. All right, let's dig into the stories that are making headlines in the Middle East. Israel's next election is now just over six weeks away. This past Thursday, each party presented its final list of candidates to the election committee. Any hints, Charlie, as to who might form the next government? Well, right now, the polls are still showing Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party garnering the largest number of seats in the Knesset, just over a quarter of the total number. Now, most polls are suggesting no one coalition will be able to garner enough individuals in in that coalition to form a working government. But at least one poll puts Netanyahu on the cusp of a very narrow victory. However, and, and this is the major factor, as many as a quarter of Israeli voters are still saying they're unsure who they're going to vote for. So right now, each party has two main goals. First, win over those undecided voters, and then second, motivate their supporters to go to the polls on November 1. As the deadline approached for parties to submit their list of candidates, several parties debated whether to unite together or try to go it alone. Uh, The three parties in the Arab joint list patched up their disagreements, and they agreed to run together. Uh, Meanwhile, Ayala Shaked backed out of her short-lived political partnership with the so-called Zionist Spirit Party and returned to her political roots to head up the Jewish Home Party. Now, John, you'll also be happy to know that the Pirate Party submitted its (laughs) list of candidates. It was formed 10 years ago. It's never received enough votes to enter the Knesset, but they keep trying. Now, as we've mentioned before on a more serious note, Israel's parliamentary system is very different from ours. People don't vote for a candidate. They vote for a party. And the largest party only receives about a quarter of the seats needed to form a government. So the election itself is just the first phase. Israel's president then gives a mandate to the party that seems most likely to be able to cobble together a coalition. And that's where the horse trading takes place as the smaller parties push to get as many cabinet positions and other places of power in the government in exchange for their loyalty and support. Now, the last government was a broad and ultimately unworkable coalition spanning conservative to liberal. The only thing it really had in common was a desire not to have Netanyahu be prime minister. Right now, messaging and building a grassroots infrastructure are key. 
Uh, the vote tallies on November 1 will determine each party's strength when the time comes to form a coalition. Well, the nuclear agreement with Iran now seems less likely than it was just a week ago. What's going on in the negotiations, though? And uh, could a breakdown lead somehow to a military confrontation? Well, a joint statement by France, Germany, and the UK best summarized where things now stand. Uh, those three said they had reached the limits of their flexibility as they watch Iran continue to escalate its nuclear program way beyond any plausible civilian justification. Now, as a result, uh, they're now doubting Iran's sincerity and even wanting a nuclear agreement. Now, what brought this about were new demands from Iran once everyone thought a final agreement had been reached, plus other aggressive moves on Iran's part. Iran is seeking to purchase advanced aircraft from Russia, while selling Russia drones now being used in the war against Ukraine. Iran also launched several cyber attacks against NATO ally Albania, which responded by cutting off diplomatic ties with Iran. Now, this raises concerns that Iran's current aggressiveness and belligerence would only increase were they to gain access to $100 billion of economic relief should sanctions be lifted. This breakdown could also lead to military confrontation, though it's unclear if the U.S. or Europe are really willing to get involved militarily. Iran has the ability to disrupt oil and gas supplies from the Gulf region, and that could especially harm Europe, which is facing a significant energy issue right now with the Russian war. Israel has shown in the past it's willing to launch attacks against neighbors threatening to develop nuclear weapons. They bombed reactors in Iraq and Syria to stop their programs. But there are several differences now. Iran is a more distant target, and its programs are not located in one easy-to-hit place. Also, Iran could be expected to order Hezbollah, Hamas, and the Houthis in Yemen to launch attacks against Israel in retaliation. Israel would be facing war on multiple fronts. Now, they would eventually win, but it could come at a high cost. They would feel more comfortable were the U.S. to join in such an attack and then promise to resupply Israel's military arsenal as they fight off attacks from their neighbors. Now, these concerns make an attack more problematic, but Israel has said it will launch an attack to keep Iran from becoming a nuclear power, and Israel doesn't make such threats lightly. Charlie, uh, bluntly, do you feel the uh, nuclear deal is probably on the way out, or do you think, nah, it's probably going to still somehow revive itself? Uh, the West still wants a deal. And if Iran is willing to just step back and say, well, no, wait, I was just, we were just kidding. Let's, let's keep the deal as it is. I think the West would still be in favor of signing it as bad as it is. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert. I'm John Gager. As fascinated as you are with the insights uh, that Charlie brings to our current events every week here on The Land and the Book, that's our first segment. Charlie, for story three, Israel has been experiencing a rise in terrorism from the West Bank. How serious is the threat? And what is Israel doing to counter it, if anything? Well, the threat is serious. Hamas has been trying to strengthen its support in the West Bank in a bid to eventually replace the Palestinian Authority. They've also built up terror cells there to launch attacks against Israel, which they believe keeps Israel from directly attacking Gaza in response. Now, to counter the threat, Israel launched Operation Break the Wave. It's involved multiple ground operations in the West Bank to arrest terrorists who are part of these cells. Israel has also given its security agency greater freedom to disrupt these terrorist infrastructures. Prime Minister Lapid reported that Israel has foiled hundreds of attacks since the beginning of the year. These include shooting attacks, suicide bombings, and kidnappings. Last week, they thwarted a large-scale terror attack planned for Tel Aviv. The man who was captured had a makeshift submachine gun along with two pipe bombs filled with nails. 
And this past Tuesday, an Israeli officer was killed in a firefight with two terrorists. Now, I need to stop right here, though, John, and say Israel is a safe country. I have no concerns about visiting, but one of the reasons I feel safe is that Israel takes security so seriously. Uh, Some countries, including some officials here in the U.S., have criticized Israel for their current war on terror. But just six days ago, we had the 21st anniversary of 9-11, and that should serve as a reminder that there are bad people out there seeking to harm us and the people of Israel. And the best way to deal with them is to find and stop them before they're able to launch such attacks. Israel lives with that reality every day, and it's something we need to make sure we don't forget as well. Well, archaeologists discovered elephant tusk ivories from the first temple period in Jerusalem. I'm curious, how do you date elephant tusks? But uh, I'll leave that to you. What is the significance of the find, Charlie? And, and what do these pieces of ivory tell us about life in Jerusalem just prior to the Babylonian captivity? Yeah, and really, they don't date the tusks, but they date the uh, level in which the tusks are found in the archaeological excavations. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this find is significant for several reasons. First, it illustrates something described in the Bible. First uh, Kings 22 talks about the ivory houses that King Ahab built And Amos the prophet condemned the houses of ivory and beds of ivory in Samaria. Now, the 1,500 pieces of ivory discovered in the excavations at Jerusalem show us that the southern kingdom of Judah also imported ivory and used it for decoration, just like its neighbor to the north. Now, these fragments that were discovered date to the time before the destruction of Solomon's temple and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. The pieces were likely used as a decorative inlay on furniture and doors. The beds of ivory described by Amos were likely wooden beds with ivory inlay, which matches what was discovered in Jerusalem. Now, it tells us Jerusalem was cosmopolitan enough to either deal in ivory tusks directly or to import furniture built and inlaid elsewhere. The pieces wouldn't have been found in the average person's house. They were discovered uh, near the original City of David excavations going on and were likely used to furnish homes belonging to high government or religious officials. Uh, The discovery is a graphic illustration of the words of judgment spoken by Amos against Israel's northern capital of Samaria. And uh, it's exactly what was happening uh, in the mansions in Jerusalem that were once furnished with inlaid ivory furniture. Current events from the Middle East. You've just heard it here on The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Coming up, a conversation about Bible memorization seen in Scripture. Interesting insights for you and me on The Land and the Book. As a kid, you might have memorized Psalm 119.11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. What about people in the Bible? Did they memorize the Old Testament? If so, why do so few Christian adults memorize the word today? And what is the fallout of this failure? We're going to talk about that and a bunch more next. Hey, welcome again to The Land and the Book. It's segment two, and I'm John Gager, hoping you'll join me in this brief focus right now on creative ways to share Christ with a Jewish friend. Well, there you are, and you have started a friendship with a Jewish friend, and you're wondering, what's a first step in reaching out to them with Messiah Jesus? That's a question we'll throw at Eva Rydelnik. What do you say? What's a first step? I think the first step is to have a genuine personal relationship. You know, just to begin communication, and Mm -hmm. I think this is true with non-Jewish people as well as Jewish people, that if you want to share the person that you love the most in the world with a person that you're just getting to know, 
it has to begin with friendship. I think of uh, former Moody Bible Institute President Michael Easley. He said for a friendship to develop, you have to have two things, common interests and time. Yes. Got to spend time together. Exactly. Common interests and the time. So what you look for are things that you have in common and then look for opportunities to spend time together. And as a result of those two elements, then conversation will come up. And, you know, prayerfully, that conversation can be directed toward the Messiah. It's interesting what you're saying, because I think a lot of times we want to jump right to that conversation so quickly, and that might well be ill-advised, you're saying. Right. Because if you go right to the conversation before they're ready to hear, the door closes. And it's very hard to pull that door open once it's shut. How to Take a Good First Step. That's Eva Rydelnik, adjunct faculty member at the Moody Bible Institute here on The Land and the Book. Professor Tom Meyer is the author of numerous books on Bible memorization, Bible archaeology, and theology. Tom is a volunteer as well at the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter, where he speaks the Word of God dramatically from memory and teaches Christians from all over the world how to memorize Scripture. Hey, we're always glad to have you on the program, Tom. Thanks for helping us work through some important questions today. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with that uh, initial question. How normal was it for people in the Old Testament and the New Testament to memorize Scripture? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, there's the clear commands, aren't there, in the Word of God? Like in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8, that this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. And then, as you mentioned at the get-go, the famous one from Psalm 119, 9 through 11, Wherewithal or how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word with my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And as you and the audience knows, I was able to live in the Holy Land for a thousand days and kind of rub shoulders with the people who live there and dig into the past and to antiquity and see how important memorization really was back then. And we all know that they didn't have the amount of Bibles that we had today. And if you wanted to hear the Word of God, you had to go to the synagogue or the temple or something like that. And they truly did store up and prize up God's Word in their heart. And we have even intertestamental examples, like in the book of Second Maccabees, it, it mentions that there was someone who, to please those who wished to read, made it easy for those who are inclined to memorize. So he, uh, he formatted a translation of the hmm. Bible to be able to make it easier for people to memorize. So they lived in an orally dominant society where memorization was prized. Okay, so we've talked a bit about the historical side of things. What is the biblical evidence that we find for people memorizing Scripture? Well, just off the top of my head, I think one of the prime examples is the Lord Jesus when he is um, verbally sparring, if you will, with the religious and the political elite in the swamp of Jerusalem. His weapon of choice is Scripture. Remember where it says, have you not heard or have you not read? And so because the society was just, you know, the Torah was the bread and butter. It's what, that was the foundation, the fabric that held the society together. And everyone memorized to a certain degree, the law, the word of God. And so I can imagine Jesus just quoting that scripture to the Mm -hmm. religious and political as his weapon of choice to be able to defend the truth of God's word. Tom Meyer speaks the word of God dramatically from memory and teaches Christians from all over the world how to memorize Scripture. He's been a coach to me personally, and I sure appreciate his ministry. All right, you, you've mentioned Jesus here, often quoting the Old Testament. Our friends at Henderson Rose Publishing have put together a pamphlet on all of the many references that Jesus did make in quoting Scripture. It is a rather lengthy list when you unfold this great big pamphlet they've put together. But uh, there's nothing in the Gospel accounts that says this was somehow strange. In other words, it seems like this would be normal. Your comment. 
Yeah, for sure. And in their world, 2,000 years ago, and I wish it was in our world a little bit more, <laughs> but in their world, it was normal to hide God's word in your heart. Think of the verses like Paul mentions in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell richly. Where? On my phone? On my shelf? <laughs> no, in you, in yeah. you. And speak to yourself. Well, how am I supposed to speak to myself? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord. So, you know, we just kind of take it for granted because we have so many copies. We're so blessed with the tsunami of copies. We have every translation yeah. under the sun on our phone. And we just think, well, I'm not good at memorizing, which is kind of true. Okay, it's hard. Obviously, it is for me, too. But still, we shouldn't neglect the, the, this ancient discipline, this yes. all-important practice to hide God's Word in our heart. Well, you know, you've touched on something that uh, is a bit of a, a raw moment for me. Recently, uh, within the last week, Somebody came up to me, and we're talking about Bible memorization, and said, you know, I tried, and I just can't do it, as if that lets him off the hook. And uh, I thought to myself, well, just like you said, you know, it's hard for me, too. It really is. I do not memorize like I did when I was a, a nine-year-old boy in Awana. It takes me a lot—I I don't think I—in fact, I would rate myself as a poor memorizer. But guess what? So what? You know, we got to stay at it. <laughs> And I'm getting on my soapbox here. We are commanded in Scripture to meditate on the Word of God. All right, that word meditate is just all over the place. Let me ask you, Tom, do you think it's too far of a reach to suggest that meditation includes memorization? Well, of course not. Look, when that verse is written, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, the Israelites are on the eastern side of the Jordan River in modern-day Jordan or biblical Moab in the plains of Shittim. And they're about to just cross over the Jordan River and go through the back door of Canaan through Jericho and into the land. And you know how we have all those verses in the, the Torah that can be a little jarring to 21st century Americans? Like, you shall not suffer a witch to live. Things like that. Well, the reason it's in the law is because that's exactly what the people in the land of Canaan were doing. Hmm. These were heathens. These were not Yahweh worshipers. They didn't love the Lord, the God of Israel, with all their heart. And these are the people that the Israelites are going to have to intermingle with and to live with and have their being with and quote-unquote go to work with and your kids go to school with, people who don't think and practice like you. And in order that you don't become like the world, you need to meditate on the law. And that word for meditate means to murmur, to chew upon, kind of like a beast chewing upon cud. Mm. And so the idea then is to chomp, chomp, chomp on scripture, swallow it, regurgitate it, chomp, chomp more, up, down, <laughs> up, down. And then the more you do that, the more energy, strength, vitamins you get, as it were, out of chewing on that word. And that is how you get to the point where the, the mind of Christ dwells in you. Well, I think the very act of memorizing for me, unintentionally even, takes me to meditation. How can, you, how can you memorize something without repeating it over and over and over again? And you're taking it apart and you're thinking about what it really means. And, and that kind of leads you to adding an inflection, even in the way you say it. So uh, I think that's where meditation has taken me. Question for you, though, Tom, why is there so little emphasis in church today on Bible memorization? I mean, it, you know, it's often nothing more than a passing thought. Why, why don't we have small group memorization time? You know, we got small groups for everything else. <laughs> well, look, I don't want to come across, and I know you don't either, is saying, like, if you don't memorize, you're not godly. That's not what we're saying in any way, shape, or form, right. right? What we're saying is that you're missing out on the benefits, the dividends, the blessings that come from that which is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
I mean, if you have the word of God hidden in your heart, you have instant access to the mind of God. You can have words of comfort to yourself and to others in times of need. You have your weapon of choice. The list goes on and on of the blessings that come from it. So you and I are just speaking from experience Mm -hmm. that please take God at his word. When he tells you to do something, do it, right? And you'll see the benefits that come. So one of the reasons why we're just not memorizers today is is I think it's just the multitude of, I think if all, all the Bibles were taken away, we would be really in a different situation then, wouldn't we? We would say to ourselves, oh my goodness, I don't have instant access to the Word of God anymore. And so I think just from the top to the bottom, from the classroom to the pulpit to the home, there isn't an emphasis. But we're changing that. We really are, John. And things are moving in a different direction. There's lots of people out there who are memorizing Scripture and exhorting and teaching people how to memorize it as well as myself. And there really is a mini movement going on. Professor Tom Meyer is the author of numerous books on Bible memorization, Bible archaeology, and theology. Tom is a volunteer at the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter, where we've called him today. He speaks the Word of God dramatically from memory, a special event coming up we're going to talk about. How do you think American culture would be different, Tom, if born-again Christians truly committed to memorizing the Word of God? Well, as you know, John, Look, just because you memorize doesn't mean you're, you're, you're perfect. Just ask our wives, right? <laughs> That's right. But what it does is it gives us the best fighting chance. Yes. Right? It gives us the best fighting chance to make the greatest mark we can in the world for God's glory. It helps us be a better father, a better parent, a, a, a better spouse, but whatever. I mean, it just equips us in such a way. It thoroughly furnishes us. It equips us. So if people would just try it, they would see that their thinking and their practice would be more in line with what God's... Look, at. as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Mm. Okay? If, if you believe you went from ooze to the zoo to you by a series of time and chance and billions of years and there's nothing special about you, then that's what you think. But if you believe that, that God has made you a little lower than the angels, he's crowned you with glory and honor, he's given you dominion... Or, see how that changes how you think? <laughs> I, I do. You are about to take part in a unique Bible recitation event. Describe this uh, very cool event. Yeah, this is, I don't know if this has ever happened before, but there's seven of us, including myself, and we are telling the entire New Testament dramatically from memory at the ICR Discovery Center in Dallas, Texas, during the Feast of Tabernacles on purpose. We did that, which is October 11th through the 15th. And so, like I said, there's seven of us, and -and so-and-so will do Matthew, so-and-so will do the whole book of Mark, the whole book of Luke, each person. And it'll be a wonderful testimony to how you two can hide God's Word in your heart, and maybe to to experience the Word of God in in a way that you maybe have not before. Is this uh, event open to the public, or is it uh, kind of a closed thing? Yeah, it's wide open. We want people from all people's nations, tribes, and tongues tuning in. If you can't get to Dallas, you could watch online at the website at icr.org, where it'll be live stream. And this will be a really, really, just think about it, John, like the entire New Testament spoken dramatically from memory. I mean, that's cool. Yeah, for sure. But I have to ask, is this New Testament recitation a continual 24-hour-a-day thing, or are there day parts that you're going to be reciting? How does that work? Well, we're going to do it over a five-day period, October 11th through 15th, which is a Tuesday through Saturday, and it'll be from Central Time Zone, like 10 to 3 every day. Okay. He has memorized entire books of the Bible. You've uh, already gathered that. Tom Meyer joins us today on The Land and the Book to talk about Bible memorization. Uh, Why this Bible recitation of the New Testament now? Why host this now? What's, What's significant that has brought this about? 
Well, among other things, just look around at our culture and the destruction of our culture, how we've strayed so far away from the Judeo-Christian principles this nation was founded on. And there's no better time of year than during the Feast of Tabernacles when the ancient Israelites would read aloud the law. Remember that? Every seven years, they'd read the whole thing. They'd read the law. And, and in that vein, in that flavor, we're doing the same thing. So it's a public proclamation of the oracles of the living God. And hopefully, hopefully people will tune in and be inspired to do the same. I got to ask, do you have your assignments already? What books that you're supposed to be reciting? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've been working on this for a while here. So uh, I'm doing the, book of, the entire book of Revelation from memory and uh, some of the Pauline epistles. And I don't know Matthew from memory. Are you kidding? But some people do. <laughs> There's someone who knows all of Luke from memory. I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, but they'll be participating in that too. Uh, what version are you guys using? Uh, I'm going to use, it's all over, New King James, ESV, NIV, uh-huh. KJV, all the mainline translations. And uh, what happens if you make a mistake or have a blackout? <laughs> well, the number one lesson is when you memorize is you always bring your Bible up there with you. Always. <laughs> and you leave it open in case you draw a blank, you've got your safety net right there. Because look, the air is human, yeah. but the Word is divine. Amen. Amen. Well, you've coached a lot of people in this area of Bible memorization. What is the single most helpful tool that you could share with listeners who feel intimidated based on your experience? What's the one hurdle maybe that we need to jump over? Give it a try and you'll see the benefits, the dividends, the blessings that come from it. All right. Just give it a try and you'll see. How about a link that will take people to you or to this Dallas event at the Institute for Creation Research? Sure. Just go to thebiblememoryman.com. Thebiblememoryman.com. A link to your website at ours, which is thelandandthebook.org. Thelandandthebook.org. Well, as always, we've packed a lot in, covered a lot of ground. Looking forward to hearing how this whole event goes for you and the rest of the team, Tom. Thank you. Well, if it's been a while since you have emailed us, why has that been so long? We'd love to hear from you, connect with you. Send us your thoughts about the program any old time at the land and the book at moody.edu. I'm looking forward to some fresh questions coming up next with Charlie Dyer right here. Because the Word of God is an inexhaustible resource, you and I have an inexhaustible list of questions, right? That's why this next segment is dedicated to the things that are on your mind as you go through Scripture. Maybe things that uh, you think about as you ponder Israel, as you read headlines. Those are welcome, too. Israel, prophecy, Scripture, all a part of this segment we call Question and Answers here on The Land and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And you know, Charlie, a lot of people are wondering, where do we look for hope? You know, in today's turbulent world, many people find themselves adrift in a sea of hopelessness and despair. So, What comfort do we have as believers? Well, Scripture makes it clear that our hope is the future that God has planned for us and the world. If you need an extra dose of hope these days, and who doesn't, we encourage you to tune in to Life and Messiah's third annual prophecy conference. It's called Uncovering the Messages of the Minor Prophets. You'll hear from world-class teachers like Dr. Michael Rodelnik, Dr. Tim Sigler, and others about this major topic from the Minor Prophets. We're certain that learning about God's plan for the church, Israel, and the world will encourage you and motivate you to be involved in what He is doing. To sign up for this free live streaming event, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. 
Be sure to sign up today. The conference begins September 30. All right, let's dig into our questions that have come in via email. You can connect, by the way, at the land and the book at moody.edu. That's what Ginny did. She says, I just read a column by a Jewish woman who wrote how the Talmud supposedly does not speak against abortion. She stated the Talmud says a fetus is only fluid for the first 40 days. After that, it becomes a part of the woman's body. She also said that the Mishnah describes God in eight different sexes. I'm confused. Also, is the Talmud what Jesus referred to when he spoke against the Pharisees, believing it was sinful to heal a daughter of Abraham on the Sabbath, but thought that it was okay to get an animal of theirs pulled out of a ditch on the Sabbath? Well, you're right in questioning the source of authority used by this woman. Instead of quoting the Torah, the Bible, evidently she based her response on the Mishnah and the Talmud. Uh, The Mishnah is the codification of the Jewish oral interpretation, and it's part of the Talmud. I think we need to make a distinction between what the Bible itself says and then how others interpret the Bible at different times. Uh, Jesus did provide examples of how the religious leaders in his day nullified God's word, as he said, for the sake of your tradition. And that's what I believe is happening in this column, certainly, where that lady's quoting the Mishnah rather than the Bible to determine God's position. Uh, So the ultimate question on abortion is, what does the Bible say about the unborn? And a passage that comes to mind, Psalm 139, where David said, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, In fact, he says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret places. God knew the child before he was even born. Uh, Jeremiah 1 is a similar passage. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And there's other passages like that uh, that let us know the unborn were given the attributes of personhood by God. It's not a blob of tissue. It's a human life. Uh, And let me end, though, with a quote from Josephus. If we want to talk about early sources, in his work against Appian, he's explaining the essence of Jewish law in this regard. And he wrote, the law, moreover, enjoins us to bring up all our offspring and forbids women to cause abortion of what is begotten or to destroy it afterward. And any woman who appears to have done so, she'll be a murderer. In other words, Josephus represents the basic first century Jewish understanding of what the Bible taught regarding the sanctity of human life. And he says it extended all the way to the unborn. All right, let's go to a couple of questions in a series from Revelation. First, Revelation 6, verses 9 through 17 describe a great multitude in white robes. Is this the raptured church? Is the church raptured after the six seals and the sealing of the 144,000? Is the church taken out after 144,000 Messianic Jews get their anointed mission to preach the gospel to the world? Yeah, if I jump to the bottom line, I don't think Revelation 6 is describing the raptured church. I think the believing saints that are listed there under the altar represent people who will come to faith and be martyred, unfortunately, during the tribulation period. Verse 9 specifically says those under the altar are the souls of those who've been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they've maintained. And I think they connect with Revelation 7. You know, following the removal of the church, the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel 9, where God specifically begins to resume his work among Israel, uh, then the 144,000 Jews for Jesus, if you want to call them that, are called and sent out. And much like the original 12 disciples, These messages have a worldwide ministry calling the world to repentance because the kingdom's coming. And the last half of the chapter then describes the worldwide impact of their message with this great multitude being described from every tribe, people, language who hear and respond to the message. So the church is taken out before the tribulation period. In fact, Revelation 3.10, 
Jesus promised the faithful church, represented by the believers in Philadelphia, that they would be delivered from the time of wrath about to come on the earth. And I see that in chapters 4 and 5, where we have a great gathering in heaven, which takes place just prior to the start of the tribulation period, which begins in chapter 6. All right, let's go to Revelation 14, verses 6 through 12. Could the three angels mentioned here be satellites proclaiming the gospel message one last time to a suffering world? Angel means messenger, and satellites could be bringing messages, perhaps from newly born-again people who would be running the radio or satellite stations. What do you think? Yeah, and I I don't believe the three angels could be satellites. So while it's true the word angel means messenger, uh, the word as it's used in this part of Revelation refers to living messengers, not inanimate objects. Uh, Each of those three angels has a separate and distinct message to proclaim. And the phrase, another angel, which is used there, uh, is used three additional times in that chapter to indicate living beings, not something inanimate. My point is, uh, here in the larger context, John seems to be clearly describing actual angelic beings rather than just using the word in some symbolic sense to picture something that might be inanimate like a a satellite tower. Steve wants to know, do you think we're going through the seal judgments now? Uh, Short answer, I don't think we are. I think the uh, seal judgments uh, are still future. In fact, I would say I see a basic outline to the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 19. John was told to describe what he had seen, and chapter 1 gives us that vision of the glorified Jesus. He's then told to write what is, that is, what exists now. And in chapters 2 and 3, he sends seven letters to seven churches in Asia, but he ends by applying what Jesus is saying to all the churches, meaning those letters for the church at large, not just those individual churches. And then he's told in chapter 1, verse 19, to write what will take place after these things. And it's no accident that that phrase is then repeated by Jesus as he tells John, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. That's chapter 4, verse 1. So all the events from chapter 4 on to the end of the book are still future. In fact, uh, after the gathering in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, the word church disappears from the book until the very end when we reach eternity. In its place, we read about the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, and we read about a temple in Jerusalem and two witnesses who will look like Moses and Elijah in what they're able to do. Uh, My point, though, is Uh, that the church disappears, Uh, the entire period, uh, the 70th week of Daniel, and beginning in chapter 6, going through the uh, chapter 19 in Revelation, are picturing that final seven-year period, and it's a Jewish context, not the church. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Our questions, well, they're from you, listeners just like you. Silas asks about Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Did Jesus physically follow Satan to those three locations mentioned in the passage to be tested? Yeah, and this is that section dealing with the temptations of Jesus by Satan. Well, the first location uh, for Jesus' temptation was the Judean wilderness, and that's where actually where he had been fasting for 40 days. Uh, chapter 3 says the devil came to him in that location. Uh, but for the last two temptations, the text seems to really clearly say Satan transported Jesus to the two locations. In verse 5, it says the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point. And then in verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain to show him the kingdoms of the world. So Matthew seems clearly to indicate that Jesus was physically taken to both locations. David asks, how do you reconcile your position that the four beasts in Daniel 7 are the same as the four parts of the statue in Daniel 2, especially since the future tense is used in Daniel 7.17, concerning the four empires. The Babylonian empire wasn't still future at the time of this vision. It was almost over. Yeah, and the answer, I think, is found in understanding the the Hebrew-Aramaic grammar. 
Uh, those languages don't have a future tense the way we do in English. Uh, they simply have perfect, uh, that is completed action, and imperfect, uh, picturing continuing action. And whether that action is past, present, or future, well, that's determined by the context. And I'll give you a brief example. Isaiah 53 uh, describes the suffering servant, and it does it in the perfect tense. Uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was cut off from the land of the living. Uh, but the actual fulfillment was 700 years in the future. Uh, the tense doesn't indicate past action, but the certainty and completeness of the action. And I see Daniel 7 uh, being very similar uh, in interpreting Belshazzar's vision. The basic vision points to the four kingdoms, and the fact that uh, Babylon had been in existence about 50 years really doesn't detract from God's revelation that four kingdoms would arise. Well, a lot of ground covered today, and you're welcome to hear this segment again. In fact, the entire program. More to come, by the way, but you can hear every segment at thelandandthebook.org. Check out our podcast there at thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next, right here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger here with a rather curious question. You're sitting down to a hot dog, and uh, you're only allowed to have one condiment on that hot dog. Is it ketchup, mustard, relish, onions? What is it for you? If you answer mustard, well, you might just have a little bit of Chicago blood in you. More than that, mustard is a part of Charlie Dyer's devotional coming up next on The Land of the Book, looking at mustard and leaven in seven stories with a purpose. But that's getting ahead of things. Right now, let's pause and listen to this Holy Land experience, a thought from somebody who's traveled to the Holy Land and shares this with you and me. Yeah, I was just going to tell you a little bit about my story. Like going to Israel, uh, there was a life-changing experience for me. I actually went to a Bible college for two years prior to going on that trip. And the 10 days that I was in Israel was actually more educational than two years of Bible school. Now, don't get me wrong, my Bible school was great. It was educational, but being there, walking the sites, you know, seeing it for yourself and, and just being able to put the picture for the Word was absolutely life-changing. It really was. Uh, when I minister, I, I constantly tell about the things that I've seen and learned while I was over there, and it's really added to not only my ministry, but to my life. So I would definitely recommend, I can't even begin to tell you about the testimony of how I thought I couldn't go, couldn't afford to, and, and couldn't make it happen, and God opened doors. So all you have to do is pray, believe, and then let God do what He does. A number of weeks ago here on The Land of the Book, Charlie, you opened up a brand new devotional series that we've been enjoying, Seven Stories with a Purpose. And I love stories, and you're taking us again to Matthew 13, a very key passage and a great source of stories. Yeah, it really is a great source of stories. In fact, I want to begin today's devotional, though, by playing a word association game with you. All right, I'm, I'm ready. You ready? I'm going to say a word. You tell me the first thing that comes to mind. All right, all right. Okay. Mustard. Hot dog. <laughs> Leaven. Uh, I'm thinking of flat bread. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, like pita bread. Okay, that's good. You know, now I got to ask the people listening, though, how'd the rest of you do? Yeah, I suspect that if you followed the word mustard, you had something like uh, a hot dog or the color yellow or ketchup or condiment or something related to food. And you know, leaven may have thrown you a bit, but I suspect that if you did respond, you said something like yeast or bread or something else related to cooking or baking. But what would you think if someone had responded by saying, mustard, 
birds or trees or kingdom. You know, that sounds confusing, but it's what Jesus did when speaking to the crowd around the Sea of Galilee. Now, to understand, let's join the group sitting beside the shore listening to Jesus as he seemingly began to speak in riddles. Jesus had just been rejected by the religious leaders in Matthew 12, and he responded by speaking to the people in parables. Jesus used these stories to hide the truth of his message from those who had rejected him while revealing that truth to his followers. Over the past two weeks, we looked at the longest of Jesus' seven stories, and today we're going to focus on the next two parables that each taught the same basic truth. Jesus began by making a very unusual comparison. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And right away, we're lost. After all, mustard comes out of a jar or a bottle, doesn't it? And the mustard I spread on my sandwich doesn't have any seeds in it at all. We tend to miss whatever Jesus said next because our train of thought just jumped the tracks. What was mustard used for in ancient times? And what does a mustard seed even look like? A mustard is an irritant, and in the past it was used more as medicine than as a condiment. The ancient physician Galen says mustard was applied to sores to promote healing and was part of a mixture used to promote vomiting. It was the ancient Ipecac of its day. There's even a question as to what sort of mustard seed Jesus was referring to when he compared the kingdom of heaven to it. Most scholars think he was referring to the black mustard plant, which does grow in the Middle East, but its seeds aren't particularly small. And though the plant can grow to over 10 feet tall, it's really more like a large shrub than a small tree. Others, and I put myself in this category, think he was describing the Nicotiana glauca plant often called a tobacco tree or a mustard tree. It looks more like a spindly tree with yellow flowers, and it grows to a height of 15 feet or more. And its seeds are incredibly tiny. The plant is toxic, so if this is the plant Jesus was describing, it was definitely not grown for food. But it was used in poultices and for other medicinal purposes. The most amazing part of this mustard tree is the small size of its seeds. I love to stop our tour bus when I see some growing along the road and grab some of the small brown seed pods. I can usually find seeds still in the pods that I shake into my hand, and I then walk through the bus and hold out my hand to show people the hundreds of tiny seeds. It's one of the aha moments on our trip as people look at the tiny seeds and then look outside at the small tree that sprouted from these tiny seeds. Trees that are large enough, as Jesus said, for birds of the air to come and perch in its branches. Jesus then went immediately into his second illustration. The kingdom of heaven is also like leaven or yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. One of our real treats during Thanksgiving is buying Texas rolls, which Kathy bakes. She places the pieces of dough in a muffin pan and allows them to rise for several hours. And during that time, an amazing transformation takes place. Those small pieces of dough grow to an enormous size, which is why they're called Texas rolls. What causes the dough to rise? It's the yeast or leaven that was mixed into the dough. The actual process doesn't sound that appealing. After all, who wants to know about microorganisms reproducing and releasing carbon dioxide into their uncooked dough? But over a very short period of time, a small piece of leaven worked into a lump of dough 
will permeate the entire batch, causing the whole batch to rise. But what do mustard trees and leavened bread have to do with the kingdom of heaven? What's the point of these two short parables? Jesus placed these shorter parables immediately after his two longer stories, and I believe he did so because these two stories look at the same basic truth from slightly different angles. In the first of these two stories, a man planted a tiny seed in the field. In the second, a woman mixed a tiny bit of leaven into a larger batch of dough. In the first parable, the tiny seed grew into a sizable plant. In the second, that tiny bit of leaven soon permeated the entire batch of dough. In both stories, something seemingly small and insignificant grows and expands in a way that's almost miraculous. And I think that's the point Jesus is making with his story. People have tried to read a great deal more meaning into these parables. They look for significance in the birds that perched in the branches or the fact that leaven often represents sin in the Bible. But when interpreting parables, it seems best to stick with the main point of the story unless Jesus himself goes out of his way to explain the other details. And in this case, he doesn't tell us that there's any deeper significance to the birds or the leaven. So what's the point of the two stories? The point in both is that God's kingdom program may appear to start small, but God will work in hidden, almost mysterious ways to bring about its growth. The seed might have been the tiniest of all those in use by farmers in Jesus' day, but the end result is the largest plant growing in the garden. And the tiny bit of leaven might have seemed insignificant, but it had the ability to transform the entire loaf. And in the same way, the kingdom program announced by Jesus will someday fill the earth when he returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. So what difference can this make in your life today? Remember this. Nothing is insignificant if God is in it. I leave with you the words of Danabel Hall, who reminds us that God specializes in using the seemingly small and ordinary to accomplish something that is extraordinary. Just ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. He chooses people just like me and you who are willing to do as he commands. God uses people that will give him all, no matter how small your all may seem to you, because little becomes much as you place it in the master's hand. You know, I'm getting goosebumps uh, as Charlie finishes there. Uh, And I do think of that chorus, little is much when God is in it. Neat thought. And you can hear today's program in its entirety, including Charlie's devotional, at our website, thelandandthebook.org. When was the last time you told a friend about us? Let them know where they can get a reliable source of biblical perspectives on all that God is doing in the Middle East. We appreciate when you do that. There's no advertising budget here. So thanks for sharing us with a friend. Thanks for listening as well. I'm John Geiger on behalf of the team. Do come back next week for another great edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.